Well, this morning I want to draw attention to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1. And I want to read all of Acts chapter 1, verse 1, the whole thing. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Begin in prayer. Lord, I pray as we consider this text again that you would bring it to life. Lord, I'm not capable of the task that's set before me to instruct these people, but you are capable. You're able to take the words of a mere man and make them life and truth. And so, Lord, would you speak into the hearts of these men and women, boys and girls? Would you heal them? Would you show them your grace? I pray, God, you put the blood of your son Jesus upon this place and guard us. Let this be set apart to you. So speak, Lord. Heal our hearts. Show us your ways. Give us grace and wisdom. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. When you think about somebody's body, what you think about my body, for instance, I think of it as a vehicle of my use. Uh, how I relate to you, how I think, the very things that I'm saying to you right now are translated through the communication of my body, my tongue, the capacities to go somewhere, to drive somewhere. The body ultimately, as I said, is a vehicle of use. And so what I'd want to do, where I want to go, what I want to say, how I relate to you is through the body. And when that body ceases to communicate me adequately to you, we go through this process called death. We die because the, Bible, the body no longer communicates us. Uh, we desire to communicate and express, and it's weakened or it's not capable. And so God, in his grace, if we're in Christ Jesus, gives us another body as we go home to be with him. But nonetheless, our body communicates us. When Jesus walked the, city of, the region of Palestine 2,000 years ago, when you read in the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see Jesus communicating himself through his body. And that's why you see in the book of Hebrews, it prophetically references the old covenant when it says, you have prepared a body for me. The body was prepared for Christ so that God in Christ could speak his life to act out. So when he healed the woman, he touched her. When he spat upon the ground, he used his tongue and his mouth, his saliva. He used his hands to pick it up and to rub it in the man's eyes. And I've often wondered, why did he do that? Because that man needed mud in his eyes to act out. Because Jesus probably knew that if he didn't rub mud in his eyes, he wouldn't do anything. So he he says, okay, now go wash. And he goes, okay, I'll go wash now. (laughs) But Jesus, through his body, is communicating his person. And his life, his reason, his actions, everything that he did was through his body. And so the body becomes a medium of expression of the person. If I chop off my left arm, I'm still me, but I limit my ability to express myself. If I take off my right leg, I'm still me, but I hinder my ability to run a race. (laughs) And so the body, when it's whole, when it's complete, is the best expression of me. And so what we find is that the body, in fact, when you think about these words, wholeness or holiness, we think, don't you want to be whole? We believe the lie of the devil that says, you know, don't be whole, don't be holy, don't be complete. Who wants to be fragmented and broken and damaged? I don't think any of us. And yet the devil convinced us that holiness is like being dipped in spiritual formaldehyde and it's death. Holiness is the best. It's being put back together. It's being fixed 
It's being made right so that I'm not all screwed up. And so what the whole body does, this holy or sanctified body, it set apart to me. You ever seen these people that have the tragedy of having some kind of spasmodium where they can't, they fight against themselves? I mean, if my right fist kept punching myself in the face, I'm going to have some problems in life. I'm not going to be very effective in my communication. Imagine if during my teaching that my right foot found it necessary to keep on kicking myself in the rear. I mean, I could communicate just fine, but you guys would be sitting there the whole time looking at me saying, this guy's got some problems. His body is communicating a weirdness about him. And so even though the body is a good communicator, it can be a bad communicator, but nonetheless, it is the vehicle of use that God uses to communicate me to the world. And even as Jesus came, he communicated through his body. And so it tells us here in Acts chapter one, as we already read, in my former book, Theophilus. I wrote to you about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Who wrote the Acts of the Apostles? Luke. Who wrote the Gospel according to Luke? Luke. Luke wrote two books. Dr. Luke wrote two books in the Bible, the Gospel of Luke and Acts. And he says, oh, in my former book, the book of Acts, oh, Theophilus, which means lover of God. Oh, lover of God. I wonder if there's any here. O lover of God, in my former book, in the Gospel of Luke, I wrote to you about what Jesus began to do, but now the intonation is in the book of Acts. I'm going to write to you about what Jesus will continue to do. I wrote to you what he began to do, and now I'm going to write to you what he's going to continue to do. And even as he communicated himself to the world around him through the means of his vehicle, his body, so it is now that on the earth, in his body, he will once again communicate himself to the world around. But you say, but wait then, Jesus died upon a cross. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. He gave the gift of the Holy Spirit. I mean, how can Jesus communicate himself? And yet that's what it says. This tool is being carried out. You see, the problem that we have ingrained in our brains is we think of the word body and we translate it instantly mean to a congregate of people that profess to be Christians. That's not what it means. I mean, would you ever say that about your human body? My human body is a congregate of parts. I mean, no, you wouldn't say that. So we think about, and I talked about the last service about this, you think about if you have a whole bunch of geese, you know what you have? You have a gaggle of geese. <laughs> or if you have a bunch of sheep, you have a flock. Or if you have a bunch of cats, which my neighbor does, you have this thing called a clutter of cats. And God bless him, I'm not talking down on cat people, although it, there is some anyway, but never mind. But nonetheless, you know what we do not have at our house? Mice. <laughs> they are gone. <laughs> but he has a clutter of cats. And then we talk about the body of Christ is called the, the, the Christian church is called the body. So as geese have a gaggle, the Christians have a body. That's not what it means, though. The body is the vehicle of his use. You see, in Acts chapter 2, it says this. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind, it wasn't a violent wind, it was like a violent wind, came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues, they weren't tongues, they seemed to be tongues of fire because if they were tongues of fire, you'd get a little owie on your head and your hair would burn. But they seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, it says in the text there. 
And so what happened at the day of Pentecost? The most obvious thing that happened was that the church received the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God came upon them. Here's the order. Jesus died. He rose again. Jesus said in John chapter 16, I need to go to the Father. You should rejoice that I'm going to the Father because unless I go to the Father, I won't send my Spirit upon you. Why did he have to die first before the Spirit could come in? For the same reason that you clean your house before you move in. Have you ever bought a fixer-upper? You clean your house before you simply inhabit the house, you see. And what the Lord Jesus Christ is doing is he sends his son, he dies upon the cross, the cleansing of sins, so that something else can happen. Sometimes we have a gospel that Jesus died for our sins and that's all. Well, I'm glad he did that, that's a foundation, but if that's all, so what? He died so he could clean the house, the blood, so he could inhabit the house. And so Jesus now, risen to the right hand of the Father, he says in John 14 and 16, he says, you should be glad that I'm going because if I don't go, that is, if I don't take my petition of my blood before my Father, he says, the Spirit of God will not come upon you. And therefore, the Bible tells us that, that we are all in the upper room, 120 of them, seeking the Lord. A gal asked me in the first service, she said, can Christians, is it wrong to have public Christian prayer meetings? I said, no. I said, Jesus prayed in public. John chapter 17 lifted his eyes to heaven, began to pray. John chapter 11, at the resurrection of Lazarus, he begins to pray. The church in Acts chapter 2, they're praying publicly. When it says don't pray uh, like the Pharisees who pray in public, he's not saying public prayer is wrong. He's saying praying like them is wrong because the reason they pray is just to be seen of men. All that to say is that the day of Pentecost, they're praying together. And Jesus comes to them and he says, listen, when I die and rise again, he tells us at the end of the book of Luke, I want you to go to Jerusalem and wait for the gift from my Father. Wait for the Spirit to come upon you. Translation, when, the, when, when I die and rise again, go to Jerusalem, don't write a tract. Don't tell people you know me. Don't go out and start a church. Matter of fact, just don't do anything. What I want you to do is just to wait for the Spirit of God to come upon you because you'll screw it up really bad. It doesn't say that, but I said it. But that's what he's saying. He goes, wait for the power from on high. They're waiting and the Spirit of God comes upon the church and there's life given to the church. So what's the first thing that happened at the day of Pentecost? The obvious thing is that we receive the Holy Spirit. But the less obvious thing, but equally true, is the Lord received a new body. Oh, excellent Theophilus, oh, lovers of God, the thing that Jesus began to do in his limited body that was here or there upon the earth, now because he's died and risen again and sent and cleansed by his blood, now he can begin to fall upon those that will walk in faith towards him and that their life will become a vehicle of God's use so that on the earth they will do, as Jesus said, even greater things than these. Do you believe him? And this is the whole issue of the body the body is not a mutual affirmation society. It's the working of God through a group of people who are yielded to his purposes to accomplish his work upon the earth. And any body in terms of a human body that fights against itself is spasmodic and it's not helping. Now, sometimes people say to me, they say, well, if you ask Jesus to come into your life, he will. And please hear me out, but that's not true. I mean, if I just ask Jesus, Jesus doesn't come into your life just because you ask him. He only comes because of the blood. And there's a world of difference. 
The example I used last service was that if this gal, let's say it's a, a drug house and the prostitutes and all that kind of stuff going on, and some gal leans out and says, hey, Ben, come on in here. Well, she asked me, so I have to come in and hang out. I don't have to come in. How much less the Lord of glory? Only there's prostitutes and drugs and all this chaos going on and partying until it's 1999. <laughs> I bet she's not partying now. And saying, hey, come on into my house. I want to come into your house. But on the other hand, if I took ownership of that house, if I cleansed the house, if I changed the house, then I would come into the house. But as long as it's you asking me in, no, there's only one basis. The Bible says, confess him as Lord. That is you on the house. And the blood of Jesus will cleanse you. You'll take the 409 and clean the house. And as we live in the house, we're not trying to go, we're not going to hold party weekends, but we will find ourselves perhaps falling into sin. And he says the blood of Jesus will continually cleanse you for that. But if you're just going out and saying, yeah, we're going to party, man, all week long, and you're just deliberate in your sin, John says you need to re-examine whether or not you've given ownership of the house to the Lord. So Jesus doesn't come into somebody's life just because they ask him to. He comes in because of the blood. He comes in because of the lordship of Jesus. Lord, would you own this house? You see, in 1 John chapter 1, it says this. In 1 John chapter 1, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. You know what the word fellowship is there? It's koinonia. Sometimes people say, well, you know, we have fellowship in this church. Hey, praise God. But our fellowship isn't with each other. Our fellowship isn't with the, uh, you know, the family room over there. Our fellowship isn't with the gathering place. Our fellowship isn't with the coffee bar next door. Praise God for the guy that built that place. He was fabulous. I love him dearly. But, but nonetheless, our fellowship isn't that. Our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And the only reason we have fellowship is because it's first with Him. I had a gal come up after the service and says, are you saying we don't have fellowship with each other? I said, I'm not saying that at all. I said, if our fellowship is only with each other, it's not biblical fellowship, but if our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, then we have it with each other whether we like it or not. The, the coffee and the donuts are the benefits of our fellowship, but they're not the fellowship. And you see, as I come and yield my life unto Him as an individual, I have fellowship with you. And as you come and yield your life to Him, you have fellowship with me. But not because we're seeking fellowship with each other, it's because we're seeking fellowship with him. And as I seek fellowship with him, I have real fellowship with each other. But get this out of order and you'll get things unbiblical. For truly our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. We write these things that, to make your joy complete. And this is the message we've heard from him and declare to you, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. What does this mean? It means exactly what I've already said. If a man comes out and says, listen, I'm walking with Jesus, but we're going to just have, you know, we're going to have all the prostitutes and the gang beggars and all this kind of stuff. We're going to do the drugs tonight. Woo, yeah, we're going to, but don't worry, I love Jesus. He goes, you're deceiving yourself but rather as you're having fellowship with him and you're growing in your maturity, you're going to screw up. And he says, and the blood of Jesus will continually cleanse you. And so what is the basis of the fellowship? The blood of Jesus Christ. 
What is the basis of the continuing fellowship? The blood of Jesus Christ. That we are to approach him, as the scripture says, not without blood. And the blood speaks, maybe not in the currency of man, but the blood speaks in the currency of our Lord. The blood speaks. And this fellowship is now the opportunity to engage one another, to have koinonia, as it tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, that we, we have this unity in the diversity. Where we get our word university? The unity in the diversity is the idea that the, the hand can't say to the foot, I have no need of you. And the parts can't despise each other. If they're truly the body of Christ, you can't walk around and just punch yourself in the jaw all day long. But because the body belongs to him, we love the body. We don't worship the body, but we love the body. My left hand has never tried to just constantly rip hair out of my right armpit. I mean, that'd be weird. Although I know a guy who did that one. But, but rather, I love my body and I care for it. And I'm not seeking to cause it harm. The devil wants to destroy the body. And the fact is, is the devil is always against the body. Why? Because the body of Christ, when Jesus walked Palestine, was the vehicle that cast out the devil. And even today, the very way that the devil, there's a real devil, is destroyed and removed, it is only through the body of Christ. If Jesus was to speak to that demoniac and he didn't have a tongue and no arms, no legs, he's not going to roll in there and, you know, <laughs> but it's the whole complete body that spoke against that demoniac. And when one part of the body ceases to be what God has called it to be, the body ceases to adequately express who the person is. And just see, this is why we have fellowship because of the blood of Jesus. So the koinonia is in him, and we become the tool of his use so that in expressing his life to the world around, this is the purpose. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, sometimes people ask me, they says, well, why was I born again? You know what the answer today is? So you can go to heaven when you die. You know the Bible never talks about that? I mean, you do go to heaven when you die, but that's not the emphasis. You know the book of Romans never talks about you going to heaven when you die? Wouldn't we agree that the book of Romans is the greatest doctrine of salvation in all the scripture? And yet it doesn't talk about going to heaven when you die. Why? Because that's not the message. That's the message we hear today, but that's not the message. Why were you created in Christ Jesus? Here's the message. Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, what? Unto good works, which God hath ordained that we should walk in them. Why did he do this inside of us? So that we could behave. What happened at the beginning? Man was made in the image and the likeness of God so that you could look at man and see what God was like. But when man sinned, he fell short of the glory of God. So what he did no longer adequately represented God. So the whole goal of God is to get, fix what went wrong at the beginning. And the gospel message, if it's not about restoring God, man to God's original intention, it's a, it's a, it's a uh, lacking gospel. And God's whole intention is to bring man back to the original state, wherein once again, as he says in Matthew 5, men could look at you and glorify their Father in heaven. So that by the way that I behave upon the earth becomes an accurate representation of who this God is in heaven. But if each man lives as an individual unto himself, each doing, seeking his own and doing his own thing, then no representation of God before the throne of heaven will ever be manifest to the world. And it doesn't mean that when you die, you won't go to heaven. It means you're going to waste your life. And this is why many people live their Christian life in hopelessness. 
They have this sense, well, there's no point to my life. What am I doing? There's no sense because we haven't adequately understood the body. It's a vehicle for his use. And therefore, I don't belong unto myself. I mean, if I use my logic, I would say, all I need is God. Logic would say that. But Scripture reveals in 1 Corinthians 12 that it's false. So Scripture says, actually, we need one another. Non-Christians with Christians? No. 1 Corinthians 6 addresses that. But Christian brothers and sisters in Christ that have yielded themselves to the Lord, we need one another because we, believe it or not, by faith, you will never look at it and guess it, but by faith, he's knit us together so that we can become the expression of his life upon the earth. This is the Christian gospel. And the reason he created you in Christ Jesus, not you go to heaven when you die, the reason he created you is so unto good works. So Matthew chapter 5, again, they would look at your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. This is the gospel in which God has ordained that we should walk in them. You know, sometimes people get their theological panties in a pinch, and they talk about the elect and the chosen. And I like to talk about the frozen chosen occasionally, but their understanding of election and being chosen is false because my, I'm friends with these people, but they're wrong because they think election is unto going to heaven or going to hell. The Bible never talks about election as salvation. It only talks about election as service. Check me out. You know what the biblical model is? You were elected not to be born again, but once you are born again, then he elects you unto good works. Now that makes sense. But this other goobly goop that you have no choice in the matter. God chose you to go to hell, whether you like it or not. And guess what? Even if you want to come become a Christian, he'll send, still send you to hell. Or some people soften it and say, well, the fact that they want to become a Christian means they are the elect. And all this twisting of theological underwear. Election is not unto salvation biblically. Prove me wrong. Election is unto service. And once you have been born again, God says, I've chosen you. For what? Unto good works. Which one? You are a hand. All right. You are an ear. Mm-hmm. You are the skin on the inner lining of the ear. You know, you know why I think that's important? Because I get psoriasis in there. And you never even knew that that was there until you get psoriasis in there. <laughs> and now all of a sudden you love the skin on the inside of your ear. <laughs> and you're constantly trying to heal it. You are a pancreas. I never want to see your pancreas. I never want to see, I never want to see your liver either. I've seen plenty of livers, plenty of pancreases. It's called working on an ambulance. But I don't want to see them. I've seen people's brains. I don't want to see your brain. I never, ever want to see your brain. Some of the parts, Paul said, are unseemly. You shouldn't look at them. But other parts need to be seen. For instance, your nose, your eyes, need to see it. Not because the eyes are going, hey, look at me, look at me, look at me. Just, their eyes. <laughs> Do you ever notice with the body, though, any part removed from the context of the whole is hideous? You have beautiful hair. Well, thank you. Bloop, you want some? <laughs> Those are lovely manicured toenails you have there, or pedicured. Well, thank you. You take some clippers off and snip them off and hand them to the person? Any part of the body as beautiful as it is, if it's removed from the context of the whole, is hideous. She has such lovely, lovely eyes. Look, I have one in my pocket. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like, 
She has lovely eyes in the context of her body. She doesn't have lovely eyes outside of the context of the body. And in the same way, friends, there's lovely parts about us as a church, but you take it from the context as the whole, and it can be rather hideous. I'm an eyeball. So not only do we have a unity of the diversity, but we also have the whole issue of them being unique, but not the same. Could you imagine if we were all the same? Could you imagine if the body here on 511 West Hastings Road was one 2,000-pound eyeball? And here this morning as you leave, there's this 2,000-pound eyeball that's going to be rolling down Hastings Road. You say, what is that? That's the body of Christ. (sighs) No, we're not teaching uniformity. We're talking the unity and the diversity. And we're not separating parts from the whole. It's the only way this is possible is if each member yields to the head, which is Christ. And as he yields to the head, guess what? Jesus isn't going to say, now fist, punch yourself in the face. But the parts are going to be obeying him. And they'll not compete with one another, but they'll complement one another. And wherever you find this evil speaking, contention and strife, backbiting, you'll find every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from God is, first of all, pure and peaceable. That's what James says in James chapter 3. And so this spirit of God comes into the people of God so they could become the body of Christ so that they could express his works. These are the good works that you should work in them. You don't have to, but you should. If you don't, your life is going to be wasted, but this will give you hope that God can actually use you because of the blood of Christ. So you should use them. You should walk in them. And this will, this will require a unity and the diversity, a yieldedness one to another, not a competing, but a complementing. And the blood of Jesus will continually cleanse us from our sins. And he has elected us or chosen us unto good works. And when you begin to think this, think this through. When you truly come to Christ, you're saying, Lord, you're my Lord. Wash me by the blood of Jesus. I am a sinner. He'll begin training you. And you know what the Bible says he's done at that point? He says, I've got a job for you. Dependent upon what you've done so far? You've done nothing. He said, I have a purpose for your life now. Before, all you could do is serve your own self, live for yourself, and it doesn't mean doing good things for yourself is wrong. We're not teaching masochism, but that's all you could do. Now I'm teaching you something that would go so much further and beyond a narcissistic existence. There'll be meaning and hope into your life. And so when you look at this election, when you look at the temple, the temple was broken into three separate categories, wasn't it? The outer court, where the altar was, where the basin of water was, the holy place that only priests could go in, and the holy of holies. And these concepts, which I don't have time to get into, if you want to get online, go to my most recent studies from Easter until last weekend. I gave a whole series of studies on this. But even as salvation is broken into three categories, justification, sanctification, and glorification, Romans, so the temple is broken into three categories. The outer court where the lamb was brought is parallel to Jesus, the lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of this world, John chapter 1, Revelation chapter 4. And so there he is. He died for our sins. The basin of water is that baptism. It's the place of justification from God's sides of things. He is giving us mercy, the mercy of God. 
recognizing us in a sinful, weakened condition, and his mercy, his coming out of his chesed, his loving kindness, becomes man and absorbs the sin into himself. He sucks all of the sin into himself, and then he dies so that if you kill the carrier, you kill the sin within the carrier. He's a poultice. You know, by the way, and I don't have time to get into this, but our understanding so often in the Western culture, not the Eastern church, but in the Western church is the theory of penal substitution, that the reason that Jesus died is because God was so angry at you, he beat up his son so that he didn't have to beat up you. Could you imagine a gospel like that? That's what people think, and they think, that freaks me out. Could you imagine me sharing with you a guy? I said, hey, look, you see this guy over here? Yeah, his name's Bluto. He hates you. Bluto's six foot nine. He's 400 pounds, solid muscle. He wants to kill you. He wants to beat the living <clears throat> out of you. But don't worry. He beat up his own son so that now he can have a relationship with you. So now he wants to spend eternity with you. Hey, Bluto, come here. I'd be like, get me away from Bluto. <laughs> You have to understand there's problems with the penal substitutionary theory. It's not stated in Scripture. It's a theory, not of what happened, Jesus died on the cross. It's why it happened. The word I like better is vicarious atonement. You ever see the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe? Who did Aslan die for? Edmund. What did he do? He went and ransomed her back from whom? The white witch. Even so, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The idea and the atonement in the first thousand years of the church was that he came to ransom us out of, from whom? God? No, the devil. And now that he ransomed us by sucking, like a poultice. You ever put a poultice on you? You get like an infection, you put a poultice. What does the poultice do? It sucks all the infection into it. And then what do you do with that poultice? Make a sandwich out of it? Play with it? You throw it away, you burn it. What took place at the altar? You destroyed it. Who is Jesus? He sucks the sin into himself and then he is destroyed. This is love. And then he goes to the water baptism which is the whole story. You'll have to look at my studies on penal substitution on this. But the whole issue of his mercy is his loving kindness. He's absorbing into himself the wrath of, that's rightly against us. Yes, a vicarious atonement though, not penal substitution. And then he becomes the victor, Christus victor. Aslan defeats the witch. He's victory over the white witch. Christus victor is that through the death of Christ, he deceived the wisdom of the demons and he destroyed their power over you by first destroying sin and then secondly destroying him who had the power over you because of your sin. And the atonement starts with Jesus, first of all, destroying sin and then secondly at the water basin, destroying the devil. What took place when he procured a people out of Egypt? He saved them out of Egypt by the blood of the lamb. And then when they started going up north, what does he do? He taps them on the shoulder and says, you need to go down south and go through the Red Sea. What is the Red Sea? Baptism. How do you know that? 1 Corinthians 10. So what happened to procure people out of Egypt, the type of the world? What happens to you and to me when he procures us out of Egypt, out of the world? He first sheds the blood of the lamb, but then he sends us through the Red Sea, which is what baptism? Because the Red Sea... Even though they're, ha- they're at Pihahiroth and Migdal and the Red Sea's to their back and the Pharaoh's army's coming at them, 
He orders Moses to wave the rod of God, symbolizing the power of God over the sea. The sea splits. He goes into the waters. You die, but you're risen again. You're baptized, Romans 6. You go into the water, but you rise again. Though you die, yet shall you live. You go into the water, and all of the children of Israel who have been saved by the blood of the Lamb go into the water, but they come out on the other side. But those who have not applied the blood, like Pharaoh, he goes into the water, and he stays in the water. He dies. Dying, he will die. And how did God procure people? He first came to the altar where the blood was shed. And then he went to the water basin in Solomon's temple. It was a swimming pool, massive. And you would go into the water. And when he saved Egypt, Israel out of Egypt, he applied the blood, and then he went into the Red Sea because this is the way God has always worked. And then if you follow Exodus right after this, he then anoints them and calls them to become a kingdom of priests. Where do priests serve? In the holy place. So he justifies you so he can sanctify you, which the devil has convinced us is a bad word. It's not a bad word. It's a good word. It means he makes you whole and complete, set apart to him. He fixes you. Do you really want to be broken? Anybody? Screwed up still? All freaking out and insecure and ruining relationship after relationship? Any takers? <laughs> God comes and says, listen, the devil is such a liar. Come into me, and I'll make you whole, and I'll put you into my service. Grace isn't mercy. Mercy isn't grace. Mercy is his, his loving kindness. But grace, remember the old acronym, God's resources at Christ's expense. You know what grace is? God gives you a gift. He gives you a power. He gives you a strength to be something you could never be by yourself, to do something you could never do by yourself. It's called his grace. Now I've received his grace, Who, but not without blood. The only reason the priest could go in is put the blood on the right ear of Aaron, on his right thumb, on his right toe. Let the blood carry the man through the temple. And we never leave the blood. It's because what Christ procured as a ransom in the outer court, we could say, at the cross, we could say, because of the shedding of the blood of the lamb, it's applied to me. And now because of what he has done, I can walk in his grace, a power to be what? A priest. I never planned to be a priest. I'm not a priest, by the way, in a clerical sense. But you know what I mean. I'm a priest in the temple of God. I'm set apart to him. And you see, this is exactly what Peter says in 1 Peter. Chapter two, you also like living stones, not rolling stones, that's a rock group, living stones, <laughs> speaking of the temple. You also like living stones are being built up. That's called progressive sanctification. You're being changed from glory into glory. You're being built up into a spiritual house. What, you as individuals? No. Yes, you as individuals, but you as individuals corporately into the collective body of Christ. You're being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And what did the Reformation bring to us, once again, to our attention? The priesthood of the believer. That why in the world would you think that you could be a priest of God, a servant of God, to represent man before God and God before men? What makes you think that you could do this? Only one reason, because of the blood of the Lamb, because of the blood of Jesus, and because I have faith and I've appropriated that, by faith, I confess him. And now I can enter into service. I can be his priesthood. 
I could serve the living God. I could come into the holy place, we could say, to use the model of the temple. I could be a servant, and now all of a sudden my life has hope, whereas before it was hopeless. And any gospel that just says, hey, you can go to heaven when you die, doesn't mean you won't go to heaven when you die because you just believe that little tiny little baby stuff. But the gospel is beyond that. You will go to heaven when you die. But here it is. He shed his blood to elect you. You're elected after you receive him as Lord. And now that you've been elected, he chose you for a purpose. And guess what? You can, with the grace of God, walk in that purpose. And you can have hope. You see, the greatest privilege that the nation of Israel had was to be in the service of the Lord. In Psalm 42, verse 2, the cry was, when shall I come and appear before the Lord? And in saying this, they understood that something of the spiritual meaning of the privilege of drawing near to God. And later on in Psalm 31, it rep- the whole temp- if you read all the Psalms all the way through, it's always about the privilege of coming into the temple of God, the privilege of fellowshipping, the privilege of being his chosen people. What an honor. What an honor that you would use my life. I was sold out to sin. I was sold out to myself, all this stupid stuff. And you bought me, you redeemed me, and then you give me grace so I can serve you. I wouldn't believe it if it was dependent upon me, but it was dependent upon you. And therefore, I enter in by faith and I say, thank you, Lord. And now all of a sudden, this blood, as the psalmist says, that we can have fellowship with him and love with him, protection and blessing, In Psalm 31, it says, Oh, how great is your goodness, which you have laid up for them that fear thee. You shall hide them in the security of your presence. What is the blessing of coming into covenant with him? He will hide you. As he goes on, I think it's in Psalm 91, he'll protect you from the lying tongue, from the slanderer, dwell in the shelter of his wings. It's found in the temple. It's found in the service of the Lord. He, if you only busy yourself with being his servant, he will guard you. He will protect you. There's security in him. And by the way, let me say this. God is a debtor to no man. You can't outgive God. God, I gave you my life. I gave you eternal life. Hmm. <laughs> you can't. He is a debtor to no man. And here he who gave everything, now because of his sacrifice, I can enter in. I can enter in into the priesthood. I can serve him by what? The grace of God. His mercy procured my life. His grace redeems my life unto a purpose. And now, Lord, I can serve you. I can be set apart to you. And it's a whole other study. How do we get into the Holy of Holies? You can't go in. Not a single person can. There's only one person that can go in there, the high priest. Who's the great high priest? Hebrews tells us, Jesus. And he will carry us on his chest into the very presence of the Lord. You see, all of this is God's perfect plan. Justification, sanctification, glorification. He pours out his mercy, his grace, and his love, or his holy love. Because whenever God is trying to procure people, whenever God's drawing a people unto himself, We only become a people because he first sheds his blood. And you see, our entire culture is so individualistic in the way we behave. You know, July 4th, Independence Day, and I'm glad for that day. But that permeates all of our culture. It's it's a very unique culture into itself that we are independent. We, We operate and live as virtuosos. And yet, if you look at the book of Acts... 
None of that was seen. They dwelt with each other. They loved one another. They shared. They saw a brother in need and they helped them. You see, godliness like this takes intentionality. That the relationship that God has called you to, you may come to church and you're saying, but I'm in the outer court. But that's all you're in is the outer court. He says, come into the inner court. And not only will I save you eternally, but I'll bring you into a purpose temporarily. And you'll redeem the time. And now you become my chosen possession, my prized possession. Your life will begin to be what it was intended to be. And there will be no regret of the day of judgment. And that day is coming. And I'll stand before him. He says, what have you done? And I can say, Lord, I only did what you told me to do. And I'm not a profitable servant. And the great goal and desire, at least my life, and I hope of yours as well, is that he would say, good, well done, faithful servant. Enter now into the joy of the Lord. But there's going to be people that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, he says, they're going to get into heaven, but they're going to smell like fire. You're going to go through the flames. You go, mesquite, I smell mesquite. Somebody gone through the fire? Oh, Bob, what are you doing? Whoa, Bob, smells like you washed with grandpa's pine tar soap. Wow, you've got a nice fragrance of mesquite upon you, which is fabulous for the skin, by the way. (laughs) But you smell like you've been at a camping fire all week. And I want to come in with the fragrance of Christ, not with the fragrance of wood, hay, and stubble. But you see, this, this body and our entire culture promotes this individualism, and thus we have little understanding of this body of Christ. Do you know why Satan opposes the church so much that is truly a church? Because Satan only attacks his enemies. Jesus said if the Christian fellowship belongs to the world, the world system, the world will love it and Satan will leave it alone. And what this means, Revelation 17, is the false church actually has no problems. Everything is awesome. Remember the Lego movie? Everything is awesome. (laughs) Everything is awesome. Satan leaves them alone and they so dumb down the message that it makes no radical requirement on the people so that everyone feels good. And they'll pay them marvelously to continue to preach these sermons. And yet the true servants are laboring and fighting and saying, this is the way of truth, walk in it. And they're being attacked by the devil. They're being attacked by people. And that's why the body of Christ is formed in the context of trial. Yet our whole sensual-oriented culture is convinced the body of Christ is formed out of niceties. (laughs) It's not true. And it's never been true. And yet here we are living in an apostate age. You're going to be tempted to become part of an apostate body the body of Christ. Jesus was persecuted and attacked. He was slandered. He went through trial, but he kept his gaze upon his father. Our fellowship is with the father and his son, Jesus Christ. And you see, if a body remains a body, why does Satan oppose the body? Because if it remains a body, it has the power to cast out the devil. The body of Christ casts out the devil, not individuals. The body of Christ heals not individuals. Listen to my 1 Corinthians 11 studies. I briefly talked about it here this morning. I don't have time for it now. But in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, the reason there's many people that are sick among you is because you don't discern the body. What do you mean? I discern the body. I take communion. You know what the context was? Their communion service was like a potluck. 
And as they came together for their potluck, they said, hey, you know, let's eat our food real fast. You know, Nancy's coming, and she always eats the good stuff, and her cooking is horrible. Arr! And they eat it. Like, hey, Bill over there, I can't stand Bill. He smells like old cheese. He smells like beef and cheese. I don't want to hang out with Bill, and so he's, you know, let's, let's not hang out with him. And there was no care for one another. Their potluck dinners were more like selfish dinners. And he says, no wonder you don't discern the body. You say he's talking about Jesus. He did talk about Jesus, but he quoted Jesus. What did Jesus say? This is at the Passover dinner before he died. Key point, Passover dinner before he died. He says, this is my body, which is broken for you. He did not say, this is my body, which will be in nine hours from now broken for you. He said, right now in this context, it is broken for you. And he says, this is the fellowship that we need to come into. Long before Jesus preached, deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me, long before he preached that, he practiced it. He was denying himself long before he went to the cross. And he says, this is my body. And those selfish monkey Corinthians fighting with each other over food, he's saying, you have to care for the body. He says, but the reason that there's so much sickness among you, read it, it's because you don't discern the body. You have no care for the body of Christ. You're like an arm that's cut off and it's rotting on the ground. He says, here's the issue. You need to be connected to the body. And you know what the problem is? Our culture doesn't, doesn't help us in this at all. And if you're going to understand this, you have to be serious and say, God, show me what he's talking about. Help me to understand this. If you email me, I can try to help send you some helps in this. What does it mean to be part of the body of Christ? Because the body of Christ casts out the devil. The body of Christ brings healing to the people. The body of Christ, if you read the book of Acts, has miracles, not fake miracles as you see on TV with guys with big hair, big hair network. You know what it's called when you get your hair and you swoop it all the way around like that real big? It's called a Hindu. Binny Hindu. But in Ephesians 4, 3, I'm ending up here. I'm out of time. But in Ephesians 4, it says this. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, there is one body and one Spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One translation, you know what endeavoring means? It just means strive. One translation says, strive to keep the unity of the bond of peace. Why? Because Satan wants to destroy the unity of the bond of peace because if he can destroy the body, he can, destroy himself, he can preserve himself from being cast out. So he attacks the unity of the bond of peace in order to preserve himself, and therefore he will be fabulous friends with people that don't actually strive to become a unified body in Christ. But he'll fabulously support a congregation that's a mutual affirmation society that's humanistic in style, that promotes self, promotes your, your best life now, and these types of things. It's about self, but it's not about God. He'll fabulously support a context like that. But we are to strive for the unity the bond of peace. And then he says, even as you are called in one hope. Look at the temple again. What happened in the temple? From God's side, in the outer court, he gave you his mercy. But because he gave you his mercy, he called you to be a priest, according to Peter. First Peter 2, now you can come in and serve in the holy place. But how? By his grace so that he can carry you on his heart, the high priest, into the holy of holies, the holy love of God, glorification. 
And in that we see justification, sanctification, glorification. But from man's side, how do we appropriate this? From man's side, how do I get the mercy? I come in by faith. Remember Paul talked in 1 Corinthians 13, faith, hope, and love? It applies to the temple. You'd be amazed at the threes in Scripture, number three, the triple things that they all connect to each other. Faith, how do I get this mercy? By faith. How do I get this grace? It's in hope. One story. Remember Noah? Noah was a righteous man upon the earth. For 120 years, he had preached about the sin against his generation. Nobody accepted him. He builds an ark. The earth floods. And he sends out a raven. Remember the raven? It's an unclean bird. The raven couldn't give him what he wanted. And your attempts at getting what you want isn't going to be found by a raven, an unclean bird. But then he sent out what was the second bird he sent out? The dove. He sent the dove out. What was the dove a picture of in Scripture? The Holy Spirit. When Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit fell upon him as a, a dove. And he sends out the dove. And the dove comes back to him with what in his beak? A branch of what? Olive branch. Someone in the first service said a fig tree. He says, nope, that was Adam and Eve. <laughs> here, 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 Noah, cover up. <laughs> it's like, no, that was wrong story. You guys are beating them. Olive branch. What is an olive branch? It's hope. What does it mean? That which sin has destroyed. Sin has ruined it, hasn't it? I mean, how many of us can testify to that? Sin, sin is its own reward. Sin is now covering the earth. It's destroyed everything upon the earth. My life is ruined, and I went to the unclean things, and it brought me nothing. It brought me no hope. But I went to the Spirit of God, and listen, when you receive the Spirit to go in grace, to operate in the Holy of Holies, to redeem your life, there's a sense that you have to reach out with both hands for the grace of God. God, I need your grace. And there it is, the dove coming back to him. He's reaching out, and as he reaches out, the dove brings with it hope. And what is the hope? That my life can be redeemed. My life can be used once again. Because of his great mercy, I can even have a relationship. And he calls me now to be a priest. Whoever would have thought that I would have been a priest in the kingship of Christ. And now by his grace, he gives me this power. The gift of his spirit inhabits me. He cleans the house by his blood. He sanctifies the man by his blood. And now he inhabits the man by his spirit so that man can now be called in the grace of God to a living hope. And in Hebrews chapter 10, he tells us, let us hold fast to our confession of hope. And you know what I've noticed about our generation? As they're reaching out for the blackbird, there's no hope. But as we reach out for the Holy Spirit, the dove, he brings with it hope. And you know what the hope is? My life can actually be used. What sin has destroyed not by your own merit, but by his grace. What sin has destroyed, by faith in him, I receive his mercy, the cleansing of his blood that carries me in all my service, and now he gives me hope. Not because of my ability, because I look at myself and I say, Lord, I can't do this. I'm not able for the task, but because of his ability and his promise, and I believe that once I was born again, that he called me to a service. And so, Lord, I reach out for that service. Show me what to do, and I'll do it, and he'll bring me to little obediences, to bigger obediences, to bigger obediences, and I don't care about the size of the obedience, just the fact that I obey him. And he matures me. He begins to use my life. 
And I'm at the cash register and I say something to this lady and he uses me. And look, I never thought this could happen to me. As a gal in our church and fellowship, she's radically being changed by the Lord. And one of the things I taught in one of the sermons was that when you begin to really walk with the Lord, people will recognize it in you, but you very often won't recognize it in yourself. And I said, and people will be coming up to you saying, have you been spending time with the Lord type of thing? And she said, there I was at the doctor, and the doctor says, what church do you go to? I want to go there. <laughs> and she says, I'm at the grocery store, and they're saying, have you been, and look, in the book of Acts, you know what they said about the apostles? They noted that these men had been with Jesus. Why? Because of the blood. And they reached out for his grace, and it gave them hope. And now they're seeing their life being redeemed. I hope this makes sense, because this will mean nothing unless you act upon it. The body of Christ, strive for the unity of the bond of peace. Strive, and so many of you, probably almost all of you are saying, I don't even know how this works. That's where you start. You tell the Lord, I don't even know how this works. Tell him that. Say, God, would you teach me what this means? And ask him to lead you. Let's pray. God, I pray that these feeble words of a weak man would become alive in the hearts of those who have ears to hear and that you would speak to them and they could understand what you're about and they would understand your mercy, but more than that, let them understand your grace. Let them come into this fuller revelation of what you have done, never leaving the foundation of the cross, but growing upon the cross making disciples, being changed from glory unto glory, being set apart to you more and more, not by our own strength, but by the grace that you give. Let us walk in the grace that you've given. Let us be a new sort of people and let us strive for the body because the body is what destroys the devil. It's what heals man. And I pray, God, that we could take this seriously for those who have ears to hear, for those that don't know you. I pray that they would come to that decision to surrender or not, but for those that know you, let them enter in. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.